the CIA makes this massive analytical error by predicting a rapid, non-kinetic, hybrid, fourth-generation, blah-blah victory for Putin. You know, Zelensky flees, Kiev collapses, the army surrenders in 48 hours. And on, you know, Biden makes a decision on that basis, on the basis of that analysis, like no weapons for Zelensky, evacuate all the diplomats. So it's, you know, kind of a disaster, and it's not that long after, you know, they told him Kabul would stand for six months without U.S. assistance. So, you know, I think a guy of Burns' experience and intelligence knows that this must be kind of a mess, but, you know, I think there's a there's a kind of political need for, for Biden to, you know, perpetuate this narrative that the CIA was lost circa 2003, but now it's found in order to position Ukraine policy as a, as a victory or as a winning issue for Biden in a campaign that's going to include Republicans, you know, trying to use the cost of supporting Ukraine against them. Maybe. Well, also just, you know, people admire Burns. You know, he's, he's good. And also, if you thought the CIA had been doing a lot of things wrong and you brought in somebody new to clean house, this is a way of telling everybody, okay, he's secure. I back him. Do what he says. The CIA is kind of a weird place. It's the only place in, in the American government that I know of where when administrations change, only like a couple of people in the building change. This is, you know, everywhere else, like half the State Department, you know, the policymaking, both Pentagon, State Department, Treasury, they all rotate, which is why we have think tanks. Um and because uh, you can you can like suck up to people and fund their research when they're out of government. Um, but the uh, the thing is that the CIA, it's like the French foreign ministry. You just parachute somebody in. So this might be a way of trying to give him a little bit more clout in the building. I have no idea. Well, that's a much, no much less cynical take than the one we have. You're, you're the pundit here. You should be the one with the spicy deep state conspiracy, not the former intelligence and state department people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I like to save my spicy deep state conspiracy thinking for the really hot topics. For the column, for the column. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. Every episode, we help you understand the news, decide what news matters and what doesn't, and enjoy following the story of America and the world more than you do now. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist, The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Walter, let's start with this week's news. First story of the week, China has unveiled an eight-part documentary called Chasing Dreams, showcasing Chinese troops vowing to sacrifice their lives to conquer Taiwan. The state broadcaster showed the documentary to commemorate the 96th anniversary of the People's Liberation Army, and according to The Times, the first few episodes focused on recent military drills that China conducted around Taiwan, mimicking a blockade of the island. But the real emphasis in the series, apparently, is featuring dramatic testimonies from several different soldiers expressing their willingness to die in an invasion of Taiwan. Is this news or faux news? It's interesting, but I wouldn't call it exactly news in the sense that it it doesn't doesn't tell you anything about whether China is getting ready to attack Taiwan. Um, 
it does tell you that that China, the Chinese government is aware as how could they not be that that if you look at kind of the history of of Chinese soldiers, um, generally speaking, most of them have been like peasant conscripts fighting for an emperor that they whose name they could not spell and possibly don't even know what it is. And individual bravery has been less the like mark of their fighting than uh, like desire to survive and get on to the next phase of their lives. So uh, trying to gin up a, to, to a sense of national patriotism and you know, getting to where you're going to have people saying, like Nathan Hale, I I regret that I have but one life to live for my country, um, or to give for my country. I had a student once who said, quoted Nathan Hale's last words as, "I regret that I have but one life to live." <laughs> Hopefully, this was at West Point. I assume this was West Point. <laughs> no, this was like an eighth grade student yeah. or something at a middle school. But it was. I loved the line. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, he, uh, you know, so I think it's partly the Chinese are a little bit worried about military morale. Will people do it? It's signaling to Taiwan. Um, but this is the kind of bluster and so on that we see a good deal of. Um, but I think on top of this, we should say that this is one more sign that you know for many many years it's been clear that the people who run china are worried about the future now why has xi Jinping, you know you go back to deng xiaoping's day when china was growing at 10% and it looked like the sky was the limit um, you know they were they were reducing restrictions on speech you go to a chinese university and the students would ask questions in a, in, a, in a campus setting, just like they would do anywhere. You'd have absolutely frank conversations with business people, or they were not afraid talking to a foreigner. Uh, from what I'm hearing these days, it's a very different experience. Um, and certainly they're, they're, you know, they're now passing out. They're saying economists should not even talk to domestic audiences stress bad news. Well, they're simply telegraphing. There must be a lot of bad news if you don't want people to talk about it. So they are worried about the future and they feel that they need to batten down the hatches, uh, double down on party control, even if it further slows economic growth. Now, there, there are two ways, you know, from the outside, there are kind of two ways we could interpret this. One of them is that they're, they're getting ready for war. You know, they want to have all of their ducks in a row so that uh, they'll have absolute control and can wield all of their national power toward taking Taiwan and then dealing with the consequences. Or it could just be the Chinese Communist Party is driven above all by wanting to maintain domestic control, circle the wagons, double down. Those aren't mutually exclusive. There could come a point where they thought that that attacking Taiwan was necessary for maintaining control at home. So it's not like a simple either or thing, but it's um, the biggest China bears of all are in Beijing. They look at their future 
and and everything they see tells them they need to crack down uh, they need to crush dissent they need to do everything possible to nail down every little window into the internet um, it's not a positive sign okay our second story of the week an associated press poll found that only 22% of Republicans have high confidence that votes in the upcoming presidential election will be counted accurately compared to 71% of Democrats. Overall, the survey finds that fewer than half of Americans, 44%, have either a great deal or quite a bit of confidence that the votes in the next presidential election will be counted accurately. Is this news or phone news? It's news and it's bad news. Um, and again, there are, you know, it's, it's easy to find people in our line of work who want to beat the drum about, you know, what a, an egregious demagogue Trump is and stirring up the skepticism. And, you know, I'm not going to stand here as a character witness for Donald Trump, um, or a defender of January 6th or any of that kind of stuff. Um, yet I think we do also have to keep in mind that Democracy ultimately is a fragile thing. It's not something you can take for granted. And the voting process, which is something no voter, you can't see for yourself what happens to votes. You can't. Uh, so you have to trust that they will do the right thing. Now, in, now, smart leaders of smart democracies, therefore, have very rigid policies about this. And furthermore, they don't make a lot of changes quickly because change always raises questions. And the thing, the sort of thing that you don't hear in the mainstream media, you know, that just wants to blame everything on Trump and the, and the deplorables, the basket of deplorables who follow him is you, you don't hear that we changed a lot of the voting rules in 2020. Now, not for necessarily bad reasons, COVID, you know, it was pandemic time. And so were people going to stand in long lines in polling booths like a normal election? Maybe, maybe not, et cetera. Okay. But um, nevertheless, you had, you know, places where ballots could be just dropped off in the you know, with no supervision, no supervision between the time they were dropped off, mail-in ballots, you know, like uh, just getting much easier to do these things, much less verification, um, resistance to voter ID. Again, you, you, you know, you, you can't pay a parking ticket uh, in, in City Hall without showing ID, but you can vote. So it's... Um, so I'm afraid what, what has happened here, and this fairly common, unfortunately, pattern in American politics today, is that the establishment lost sight of a, of a not very dramatic or interesting but fundamental building block of strong democracy, which is elections that not only are honest but are seen to be honest. Right and and a process that enjoys confidence. They underrated the importance of stability, continuity to that, and now and because of that, a big gap has opened up where a lot of people, regardless of 
what Donald Trump says or doesn't say, um, you know, are saying, ah, oh, you know, I don't, I don't trust it. More than that, if you look at the history of American politics, vote fraud is as American as apple pie. All right. It's incredibly common. All right. It goes back to the beginning of the Republic. And, um, you know, people, um, landslide Lyndon was Lyndon Johnson is, is plausibly alleged to have stolen the vote that made him senator in his first Senate race. Um, I remember talking to Bob Strauss, then the ambassador to Russia, a great democratic politician from Texas. And I was asking when Boris Johnson was at 5% in the polls, uh, you know, running for re-election, if he thought he was he, he could win. And Bob says to me, well, he says, I know old Boris pretty well. He says, and, and if Boris can get within what we in Texas call stealing distance, I think he'll be fine. Um, so, you know, um, in a lot of the country, ballot box stuffing has been around a long time. Now, I'm not saying it still goes on today. I don't know anything about it. But what you know what I've never seen, Jeremy? I've never seen a good history of how voter fraud disappeared in the United States. Is it because we all became just much more ethical and wouldn't dream of this? Is it because we actually had better, we developed better verification procedures, so it just wasn't worth it? Is it that um, it just didn't seem to make that much of a difference, so nobody bothered to do it? I mean, the entire Democratic Party machine in Detroit for decades has been convicted in court of being a RICO conspiracy for embezzlement, fraud, pension fund theft, every ugly political crime you can think of. Now, do we think that never once did it cross the mind of anybody in Detroit that the, a race for, I don't know, I don't know anything about Michigan politics, but let's say attorney general, you know, was a state race. And so if you piled up huge majorities in Detroit, that might protect your criminal conspiracy political machine from prosecution? Might that not have crossed somebody's mind one night? Probably not. You know, probably nothing ever happened. Right. Um, and, you know, and then again, as we've gone in the press from 50 years ago, a lot of the guys in the press room, and at that point, of course, they would have mostly been guys and so not all. They like came from blue collar backgrounds. They had like cousins who were crooked Pauls or whatever. They knew how the game was played, all right? And they could tell you whether an election was normally dishonest or extremely dishonest or miracle of miracles actually in this particular case, clean, all right? They would have access. I am sorry, but political science majors from Ivy League colleges have no clue how anything works in the sort of world of retail politics. And so when you hear these, you know, these sort of um, Ivy League educated, cultivated voices, and I say this as a Yale man, so shoot me if you must, um, telling you, oh, there couldn't possibly be any voter fraud. There's no evidence of voter fraud. All right, 
Like if you think a college boy can audit the mafia, okay, go for it. Um, so, and I'm not, you know, again, I am not saying this to allege that there was some kind of national conspiracy to steal the election from Donald Trump. Um, what I'm saying is that a lot of Americans who have basic common sense don't think the 2020 election was done under the same rules as past elections and don't have confidence that the national establishment media either knows the truth or, in fact, if they thought it would help Trump, is willing to tell the truth, right? So this is a much bigger problem. And instead of just saying, oh, these nasty, deplorable people should shut up and, and go away and, and listen to the experts, right? We need to actually think, okay, what do we have to do to have a democracy and to have a voting process that, that we won't have a minority of people having confidence in, that most people will have a lot of confidence in it? Because without that, our democracy is not safe. I remember in, in 2020, by the way, before the election, I saw uh, Samantha Power was being interviewed on TV. She was zooming in from you know her, her home office or wherever, where she had on the bookshelves behind her displayed very prominently, like every good Beltway insider, the Robert Caro, Lyndon Johnson books. And she was explaining to the person interviewing her how there has never been a reason in American history to believe in election fraud conspiracy theories. And I remember thinking, you've never read those books. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, history, you know, history was not made on the whole by college boys. And that's something we all need to remember. All right. Our final story of the week. A Pakistani court has sentenced opposition leader Imran Khan to three years in jail over corruption allegations threatening to remove the country's popular former prime minister from politics ahead of national elections due later this year. A large contingent of police arrested Khan at his home in Lahore and took him to jail shortly after the verdict, which found him guilty of illegally profiting from the sale of gifts that he received while in office. It's the second time in less than three months that the authorities have arrested Khan, who has repeatedly clashed not only with Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif's government, but with the country's powerful military. So the never-ending saga of Imran Khan, Walter, news or faux news? Faux news. Um, you know, all basically, Pakistan is fundamentally, you know, it's run by the military, but the military doesn't want to, it sort of wants to offload the dirty parts of governing. Like it doesn't want people to hate the generals because the potholes aren't filled in the road or the schools aren't good or the power is down after the storm. So various civilian pop politicians uh, are in office uh, and, it's and, and it's sort of clear that they don't get to make big strategic decisions. Are we going to have peace with India? Are we going to cut the military budget? That's not really up for consideration. Okay. Or even are we going to align with the Taliban? Those things are, you know, civilians don't have any power over that. And by and large, and I won't say this is true of everybody, but it's certainly true of a lot of them, what they do instead is just steal. It's like basically 
what I get in return for participating in this charade of pseudo-democracy is I and my political allies get an opportunity to get in there and loot. And the military, um, you know, begins almost immediately with a new civilian government to start undercutting its moral authority. Oh, there's uh, uh, corruption. Oh, what a shame. Someone honest who loves the state needs to take power. All right. This cycle has been going on a pretty long time. And what the military would actually like is for all of us to be talking about the differences between one Pakistani political party and another political party, one Pakistani politician and another politician. None of it really matters very much. I mean, it matters a little bit. And, you know, to some of the people involved, it could matter a great deal. But it's not real news. All right, that does it for the news this week. This week, we're going to fold the learning curve and the big conversation into one segment because there is probably, uh, you could say, a big blunder or a series of mistakes made in recent history combined with a lot of interesting things going on right now in the news that we can explore so, Walter, there's a sort of interesting dynamic we're witnessing in Europe and America at the moment. So, for two weeks this past July, we saw what might have been the Earth's hottest period on record. About 40 million Americans, 11% of the population apparently, endured heat levels that are considered dangerous even to perfectly healthy people. Cities like Phoenix and El Paso broke local heat records. And in Europe, dramatic fires broke out uh, all over the Mediterranean in Croatia, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain. Heat records were broken in Sardinia and Rome. The tourism industry in Southern Europe's been suppressed. I mean, this summer's really been, for all intents and purposes, what, what they call an extreme weather event. And yet at the same time, through all of this, political movements skeptical of climate change or hostile to climate policies and green politics, that's probably the better way of putting it, seem to be gaining ground in the West. So Rishi Sunak in Britain recently threw some cold water on Britain's green transition targets. The European People's Party in Brussels, the, the, the biggest uh, party in the EU, seems to be moving away from the green transition. Georgia Maloney in Italy is seen as a leader on this issue. The AFD in Germany is surging, not just from its opposition to immigration like everyone thought, but really capitalizing on what turns out to be a pretty widespread dislike among Germans, the greenest of green voters, for the costs and the burdens of the green transition. And in the US, of course, the much vaunted Green New Deal, which figured prominently in the 2020 election, in the, in the first Biden term seems to have hit a ceiling of sorts with uh, the Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, which are much more a product of the industrial preferences of like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema than of Ocasio-Cortez and so forth. So is the green movement failing? Has it kind of officially failed? Is this a, a moment of transition for climate politics uh, itself? You know, it's, I mean, the green movement is, the, the largest international social movement of our time. And it has had enormous success. It's, it's built political parties that in a number of countries, you can hardly form a government without them. It's had great influence on 
politics and policy almost everywhere. Uh, there's been sort of more diplomatic activity about um, climate change than almost anything else. You know, there does seem to be one little problem, which is the only thing that isn't changing is that emissions aren't going down. But I'm sure that another another hundred private planes flying to another thousand uh, gatherings of the great and the good will fix that. Look, um, it's the problem. I think is that climate change is a real problem, uh, but that diplomacy is not. We we don't have good policy tools to deal with it. This is the one problem. I mean. Um, treaties, which are the kind of classic strong mechanism of international politics, uh, are usually, you know, can work pretty well under certain circumstances. Like um, you can have in the 19th century, at the beginning of really environmental action in diplomacy, you know, first seals were getting wiped out because everybody wanted their really nice seal coats. So they actually developed limits on how many fur seals you could kill and where you could kill them. And it was a very specific activity and it could be monitored reasonably well. And so, you know, the treaty mechanism sort of works for that. If you can get an agreement, uh, you, can, you can verify it. It's a limited range. But, you know, to carbon you know, uh, emissions of greenhouse gases are tied up with every economic activity in a, in a society. So, you know, what I eat, do I want to eat beef or will I eat tofu? Um, you know, that's an activity that has an impact on emissions. Well, an international treaty is going gonna, is gonna to regulate that. We have no clue, for example, China is never going to provide accurate information about how much is emitted by different factories in different parts of China, in part because the CIA could take that information on emissions and give it a pretty good idea of, of what munitions China was making and where it was making them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it'd be the greatest gift to the world's intelligence agencies ever. And let me tell you this, countries aren't going to make that gift. Then you look at a country like Nigeria. We have absolutely no idea how much CO2 is emitted or how many greenhouse gases are emitted in Nigeria, nor do we have any reasonable way of measuring the impact of some policy. You know, if you've ever tra you know, visited cities where you have miles and miles of squatter homes heated by anything for, you know, where people are using propane, trash fires, whatever they can get their hands on, animal dung for fuel. Um, people don't know how many people are born and died in those places in a given year, much less what's happening. So how do you, how are you, you can't regulate this on the municipal level, given the, the competencies of the, of the state and the government, much less on a national and then regulating it on international. Meanwhile, you have this, this other problem that I think is probably impacting uh, the politics in Europe more than we think, which is that, frankly, from the standpoint of the climate, 
it really doesn't matter what anybody in Europe does. That is, if India and China develop along, and, and a short list of other countries all in the quote, global south, if they develop on a fossil fuel basis, the emissions curve is going one way, even if everybody in Europe died tomorrow, um, much less recycled more diligently. And so to some degree, these are kind of symbolic acts that people are being asked to undertake. You know, to, it, it's, it's not that you're installing a heat pump will stop climate change or affect the temperature in on your summer vacation next year, even your grandchildren. There, people make this kind of airy-fairy argument. Well, if you set a good example and show climate leadership, ambitious climate leadership, then other countries will be so either inspired by or intimidated by your good ethical example that they too will sacrifice and then we'll all be saved. You know, it doesn't take a huge acquaintance with human nature for people to start to have some doubts about that. And then I think on top of that, you've got um, the renewables lobby. Let's not forget, energy is a multi-trillion dollar energy uh, industry. If I can pass a law that says that everybody in the world has to buy my product, e and, and either the government will subsidize you, the consumer, so that cost is less to you, or me, the producer, so I can sell it to you at a lower cost, or just simply tax the alternative and make them expensive, I'm going to make trillions and trillions of dollars. And so the renewables industries, the, you know, the, the wind industry, the solar, all of these things are, you know, a lot of the lobbying, a lot of the money that goes there is, is driven in the same way. I'm not saying these people are evil, particularly evil. In the same way every industry lobby is done, it's not done by what will help the climate most, but what will help the bottom line of the solar panel producers or whatever it may be the most. And so the green, the green movement as a whole has a hugely imbalanced flow of money where these industries with a very specific set of agendas, not at all identical to the, the generic policy issues of climate change, are shaping and one could say warping the movement agenda. Now you put all of this together and what you get is a mess, uh, a real mess. And, it's, and I don't think, myself, I don't think this movement is going to solve this problem. I used to work at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, as you know, and one of the things we were always kind of preoccupied with was lobbying the, the German government to provide subsidies for a natural gas uh, floating terminal, uh, which would help wean them off their lignite coal addiction. They were always, you know, very, very reluctant to do so. But one time I was uh, on a temporary duty abroad and I was flying back to Berlin and we had to circle over Tegel Airport for 
over an hour because climate activists had glued themselves to the tarmac, you know, as part of some uh, climate protest. Eventually we landed and I went home later that night and I had the experience, I think a lot of uh, expats in Berlin do, where I took my trash down to the basement in my apartment building and I got yelled at by one of my neighbors for not properly separating my green glass from my transparent glass in the recycling bin. And I thought, you know, something is really broken here. <laughs> yeah, it's, again, it is, it's a religion. Um, you know, I, you go to Brooklyn and you find people there who have no God in their life, no sense of religion, but maybe they're sort of third generation secular Jews or, you know, and yet, and they spend as much or more time thinking about dietary restrictions as their kosher great grandmothers would have done. <laughs> right. And it's the same intensity and the same sort of spiritual affect um, that, in a, you know, what we eat is one of the ways that we relate to the, the, the entire universe. And getting that relationship right is, it can't just be a pragmatic thing of like, what vitamins do you need? Or, you know, what's the right nutritional balance? So that's important too. But it's, you know, is it morally and ethically, is it sourced properly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that's it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. Our listeners might not know yet, Walter, that you are as much of a poetry buff as you are a history buff and a news junkie. So assuming most of our listeners are beginners when it comes to reading poetry for pleasure or have no experience with that whatsoever, where would you recommend they start? Which poet for you is, is impossible not to fall in love with? Mm. Well, especially for people who don't know a lot of poetry, I would sort of, you know, one thing to think about is light verse, you know, um, limericks. And uh, there's a wonderful uh, writer, Hilaire Belloc. He was a friend of G.K. Chesterton, lived uh, in the earlier part of the 20th century. He wrote a wonderful book of, what is it? Uh, uh, basically, they were poems for bad children. I think it was... Uh, uh, verses for beasts for bad children. We'll check for the edits here and get this right. But there's one wonderful poem that starts out about Matilda, who told lies and was burned to death. So Matilda told such dreadful lies. It made one gasp and stretch one's eyes. Her aunt, who from her earliest youth had kept a strict regard for truth, attempted to believe Matilda. The effort very nearly killed her. And it goes on and tells the story of how Matilda did tell lies and was burned to death. And there are also wonderful stories of children who do bad things and suffer grievously. Excellent for reading aloud to children and a <laughs> lot of fun for just learning what language is. As a writer, I sometimes, you know, I, I look at, when I was in high school, we had, a, we had an old fashioned Gothic chapel in our high school. And it had one of these like 
you know, amazing, humongous Gothic church organs in the chapel. And our organist, who was kind of a short man, was really good. And you go up there and watch him play. And it's like, you know, there's like five keyboards and three pedals and a thousand stops. And this guy is like moving and moving and he's hitting everything and wham, wham. And he's making all of these sounds come out of the organ from, you know, trumpets to bass to just, um, you know, strings. It's everything is there. And yet, and that's the English language to me. That's what the English language is and what it can do. But most people, and I hate to say this, Jeremy, but most people in our field of foreign policy and maybe even journalism, uh, they, they play on one keyboard with two fingers, they play chopsticks. And that's like all they get out of this instrument. So I would say part of learning about poetry is just becoming aware of what a miraculous thing this language that you speak really is and what it can do. It can howl in the storm like Shakespeare. You know, it can make you laugh like Hilaire Belloc or maybe even Dr. Seuss, you know. It can, it can thrill you, it can chill you, but read stuff that gives you some sense of the awesome magnitude and might of one of the greatest creations of the entire human race, the English language. All right, there you have it. We'll be returning to poetry throughout this series, I'm sure. Thank you very much to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time.